Welcome to Cold Steel, the Canadian Journal of Surgery podcast with your hosts Amir Farouk and Chad Ball. The goal of the CJS podcast is threefold. The first is to highlight the best research currently being completed by Canadian surgeons. The second is to offer educational topics for both surgeons and trainees alike. And most importantly, the third goal is to inspire discussion, thoughts, creativity, and career development in all Canadian surgeons. We hope you enjoy it. Surgeons often feel powerless to make change in the systems that we work in. But as Dr. Andrew Fury says in this episode of Cold Steel, the key to change is to just do it. Dr. Fury is an orthopedic surgeon at the Memorial University of Newfoundland. He is also the new Premier-elect of the province of Newfoundland after winning the Liberal Party nomination on August 4, 2020. In this episode, we hear about how Dr. Fury started Team Broken Earth, a humanitarian organization his work with Team Broken Earth in Haiti, and his thoughts on leadership and physician advocacy. Dr. Fury, thank you so much for uh, coming on Cold Steel with us. We really appreciate you coming on, especially during these very uncertain times. I know many of our listeners will know you well, but for those who may not, can you tell us a bit about where you grew up, how you ended up in medicine, and why orthopedic surgery? And what made you stay in Atlantic Canada uh, as a faculty surgeon? <laughs> That's a pretty loaded question. That's uh, multiple multiple parts of that. But uh, first, thanks for having me on. Um, uh, so I, I grew up in St. John's, Newfoundland. Um, I uh, actually did a fairly liberal undergrad degree. wasn't sure what I kind of wanted to do in life. I was drifting towards medicine, but come from a family of teachers and lawyers and uh, was also kind of keen on that. And so I applied to both medical school and law school, got into both, and then took the leap of faith into uh, into medicine. Decided to really study medicine, decided to stay at home to study medicine. Uh, and as I was uh, doing my undergrad degree, um, I realized that I, that I really enjoyed the surgical specialty pretty early on. Um, was, was attracted more to the to the anatomy uh, than the physiology, so to speak, and um, and from there uh, discovered that I was really keen on MSK. I'm not the typical kind of orthopedic surgeon. I'm not the kind of jock who was on every sports team in high school or anything like that. Um, I never had really any exposure to orthopedics, but was it was really uh, attracted to the um, biomechanics and the and the immediate difference you could make in someone's life. Um, you could see a see an X-ray, you could see the problem, you could articulate the problem, you knew what the problem was, and then you could articulate and, and execute on it on a solution, uh, and then see the see the fruits of your labor in short term. Uh, seeing someone who you know was involved in a motor vehicle collision with a femur fracture who was not able to walk in traction and then you know 24 hours later was walking on the ward it was pretty powerful uh for me and that that led me down the, the path of uh of orthopedics uh i was always attracted to the to the fracture side of orthopedics um even as a, even as a clerk uh and medical student and uh that continued uh orthopedics has a lot of incredible careers to offer, but I was really still attracted to the excitement of uh, of trauma, and that led me to a fellowship in uh, trauma, in um, shock trauma in Maryland, and um, 
myself and my wife were, were living there, and we had actually entertained uh, taking a job there. I actually had taken a job, uh, at, and um, my wife came came home one day and just said, this is too busy, it's too crazy, let's try to find it. We had just had a baby. Uh, she said, this is an uh, incredibly dangerous city. There was a cop shot in our neighborhood, and mm-hmm. was working all kinds of crazy hours, and she said, you know, maybe it's maybe it's best if we move back to back to Newfoundland. And so we did uh, set up shop here in Newfoundland in uh, 2007. And uh, even though she's a come from away, I couldn't get her away from here even if I tried. That's awesome. Yeah, shock trauma is a really interesting place, eh? Both on the orthopedic uh, side and the general surgery side. It's it's an it's an incredibly unique uh, institution. I feel I feel incredibly privileged to have uh, experienced it. It is a truly special um, place uh, full of special people. Um, it's, it's very humbled and honored to have been able to be there for a year. It was truly, truly amazing. Yeah. It's a, you know, it's amazing as Canadians, again, whether it's orthopedics, general surgery, urology, whatever that is, uh, you know, heading down to the U S to some of these incredibly high volume, unique, and a little bit rough, as you point out, experiences, um, you know, a lot of our country is at least on the trauma side, injury side is trained in the same way with sort of similar experiences. It's quite neat. Yeah, I mean, and as you know, it's a standalone. At the time, I assume it's mm-hmm. still is standalone. It's, on, it's the only standalone trauma facility in the whole in the whole country. Uh, so you couldn't, uh, you, you know, you had to meet a certain injury severity scale to get in through the doors. I still don't think people believe me here in my 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 local colleagues when they say I didn't see an elderly hip fracture the whole for a full mm-hmm. year. You know, <laughs> like I didn't. Yeah, exactly. We never exactly. used cement. I never saw any re- joint replacements. It was all young people um, who had who were involved in you know in in a trauma had multi multiple injuries. Um, I think I forgot that towards the end of it, towards the end of the fellowship, I think I forgot that there was any, that you could have a closed injury. You know, everything was an open fracture. Everything, everything was an open fracture. Uh, so, I mean, an incredible place to, to live for a year, an incredible place to work, incredible people. Uh, just the, the amount of experience you can get in a year is, is phenomenal. Yeah, it's mind-boggling. It's, it's, yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's the, the the list of those kind of jewels for all of us is, is short, but wow, are they they impressive? Um, and you know, Andrew, one of the things that we all know you very well across the country um, for is your your tremendous uh, and and the longevity and the intensity and the success of 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 your interaction with global surgery. And I guess the the vehicle or the moniker that we mostly know is is Broken Earth. I'm sure there's others as well that you've been involved with. Um, both in the past and present, but uh, we're curious, what, what prompted you to create Broken Earth over the years? Can you describe it to us? And in particular, I wondered what those initial days looked like when you were trying to set it up and trying to, to get it moving. Sure, yeah. I mean, um, so the, the kind of serendipitous or the, the different portion of this kind of adventure has been that, you know, in in medical school and residency, global health was never really on my chip. Like, I wasn't wasn't something that we kind of grew up talking about at the dinner table. I had known some uh, medical student friends who had gone to Uganda and other places. And uh, look, I was their biggest cheerleader, but I was never kind of never really thought that it was uh, something that I would end up uh, doing or being a part of my life. And then um, when we came, 
when we came back uh, from this high-powered fellowship with lots of trauma. I was still keen to try to find uh, ways to uh, to keep that level of uh, energy and adrenaline up, but never really found something. And then, you know, fast forward a few years, um, and uh, the earthquake happens in Haiti, and sitting in my living room and, and watching the images coming in live of, of the collapsed buildings and, and, and the human dis- despair and, and destruction. And, and it kind of hit me that, you know, they were going to, people were going to die or had died uh, of their general surgery injuries, their neuro surgery injuries, but they weren't necessarily going to die. of their orthopedic injuries. And maybe, you know, I could find some way to help, and so I uh, volunteered initially then with a with a group out of shock trauma to go down as a part of a uh, of a of a crew of people uh, operating in a partially collapsed hospital in downtown Port-au-Prince and uh, it was life changing i mean um, that that's the bottom line you, uh, standing in amidst, amongst all the rubble in this kind of mash unity type of ta- of the hospital um it was it was it was a, it was one of those moments where you either say okay I can check this off the list and uh, I've done been there done that or been there seen it and there's so much more to do let's let's try to do something bigger so when I got home from that first experience having never done anything like it before uh, I mean I was fundamentally changed and um I wanted to to do more and and part of being a a part of a team from the United States mixed with all kinds of different people from all over. Um, there's a, I felt that there was a way that we could improve on the efficiency of, of that model by, um, by having, by just going with people that you know and trust because it's like anything, you know, if you're mixed mm-hmm. with a group of people and you're thrown into a chaotic situation, you still don't know their names. You're trying to remember where they're from. You're trying to, you know, you're trying to figure out if you can trust them because as we all know, everyone, you know, not everyone in medicine who says they can walk the walk can. Yeah. And, um, but I thought, you know, like I, I know my anesthesiologists here. I know my plastic surgeons here. I know my nurses here. Like why, why can't we just kind of take a group of 30 of us or whatever from Newfoundland and Labrador and, and, and go to Port-au-Prince. And then I, I know I can trust them. I know what they can do. And so that's how the kind of concept began. It really kind of started over a cup of coffee in the OR lounge when, with two guys asking me about the uh, initial experience in Haiti and wondering if they could be involved if we ever decided to go back. And I, at, up until that point, I'd never really thought about really, truly kind of going back. But this in, Right after the trip, people started asking. And then I thought, well, you know, maybe we can put together this team. And this will be, it, this was only supposed to be a one-off. It was supposed to be, okay, we'll go down with one team. And uh, that'll be Newfoundland and Labrador's contribution to the relief effort in Haiti. And it was just a total fluke that we put a name on it called Team Broken Earth because we, I felt like people would want to feel like they were part of something. And, you know, we, just to say Team Newfoundland didn't really make any sense, you know. Um, so we went down and it was a team of uh, 27 or 30 of us initially, I think, and uh, operated out of a hospital um, in downtown Port-au-Prince in the Red Zone, which is one of the most violent areas in, in a violent city. Um, 
it made a real difference to a lot of people. Um, and started to build some relationships there. And I really, on the plane ride home, I thought oh, that's pretty neat. We just did some cool stuff and we should all be proud of that. And, uh, but I wonder if there's anything else to this. And within minutes of landing, my Blackberry had just been totally lit up with, you know, nurses and doctors and physiotherapists all saying that it was one of the best things they've ever done. They want to go back and, you know, when can we go back and let's go back. And, and so there's, there's another kind of epiphany moment of, you know, well, maybe if Newfoundland and Labrador kind of sends to, uh, two teams once a year to Port-au-Prince, we could have a regular rotation. Um, you know, we can develop relationships. We can start to think about education. We can, uh, start to have a continuity of care and start to build a program. And, um, so that's, that's kind of how it started. And then believe it or not, um, the rest of it is a lot of just word of mouth. Um, Paul Duffy from Calgary, an orthopedic surgeon who I trained with, excellent guy. One of my, you know, I consider him one of my best friends, even though there's a geographic distance between us now. Um, was here in, in Newfoundland playing a hockey game, uh, an annual general surgery versus orthopedic hockey game that we have here every year. And, and orthopedics, of course, has to win every year. So it's not, we're not, be, we're not, we will fly people in ringers like Paul to make sure. I love it. I love it. <laughs> and uh, so we we're in the in you know a dressing room and and, and chatting afterwards. And Paul saw the broken earth emblem on the hockey bag, or you yeah. know, and, and said, you know, what's that all about? That's that, that's started telling him, and he said, well, I think yeah. we could do that in Calgary, and and that's and Calgary was the first kind of jump off where you know. Well, Newfoundland and Labrador, we only have, we're only 500,000 people and everyone's yeah. taking their vacation time. Like two teams a year is probably, you know, well, that's more than we could expect. And, but if everyone in Canada started to do a little bit, yeah. um, then all of a sudden you have a real program, real continuity of care, people offering different skill sets, building different relationships and, and building true capacity at, at, at partic- in particular in Haiti. You know, it's it's interesting. I didn't realize that the the Calgary group was was so early because when when we went down, it felt like it was pretty well oiled. Like it it felt like a, like everything was smooth and and there was no big hiccups. At least uh, uh, up front, I, I didn't I didn't realize that. I'm sure there must have been some pretty significant challenges for you. Um, you know, just setting it up moving forward, in particular, maybe with the with the communication and the relationships on the ground there and with the locals is that accurate absolutely i mean the the challenges the hurdles and the barriers that we've overcome um they seemed immense at the time but it's Mm -hmm. funny you know like thinking about them now they're hard to remember (laughs) right um i mean there was many 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 crossroads uh, whether it's the first trip or you know the second or third any where we kind of thought you could have put your tools down and just said this is too hard like oh there's no way we can overcome i don't know the the travel insurance or the finances or whatever and we just kept pushing and we and you know and and it, initially it became frustrating, but then you kind of just accepted it. If you kind of got over one hurdle, you knew there was going to be another one just around the corner and you try to deal with that as best you can and, 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 and move forward. But initially the relationships, I think that, you know, I, I talk about broken earth a, a lot around the country and, and in the United States. And I think what makes us a bit different than some other organizations with respect to 
Haiti in particular, is that we have committed uh, to this one entity and we built those relationships so that um, so that people can leverage what relationships we have built. Uh, and mm-hmm. I think if you were going to set up your own broken earth or your, and call it something else, like you would find the money, believe it or not, you would find people who do it with you. You would find a location that would take you, but the, the hurdle that is the most difficult to overcome. And it's only because we've been at it for 10 years mm-hmm. is, is the relationship and the, and the trust that's just been built over time. And, um, and, and that's what we can. That's kind of the added value that we kind of bring to the to the equation. Yeah, that makes sense. You wrote a really great paper uh, in the Canadian Journal of Surgery about the 2014 Haiti Orthopedic Trauma Symposium, and it's you know the the concept of legacy or of sustainability um, of of leaving you know maybe as much as you as you take from it uh, is something that you've talked about. Um, it's something that is ingrained in, in Broken Earth, uh, I would say, as a culture. Um, can you talk about that, that paper and, and what that goal in terms of the conference was and, the, and your, your view of sustainability? Sure, yeah. So we've evolved from being like just in, entirely clinical initially, and, and, and I think that was uh, obviously that was what brought us there in the first place in terms of an earthquake, but then it became... Uh, immediately evident that, you know, we needed to shift to an, an education uh, component if this was, if we we're going to make an, an, an impact long term, because you can treat one femur, but if you can teach someone how to treat multiple femurs, then, you know, then that should be the ultimate goal, and the ultimate goal should be to work ourselves out of a job down there. So, we quickly pivoted to uh, an orthopedic, as an example, as an orthopedic uh, trauma symposium. And the symposium we've done five times now, and have, we've been on hold for the last year initially because of um, instability and political instability down there and now because of COVID. But what it is is... Uh, it's a series of lectures put off by Canadian orthopedics and U.S. orthopedic surgeons uh, from across two countries. Uh, we bring uh, all the orthopedic or as many orthopedic residents as we can and from around Haiti, including subsidizing their travel from up north and, and bringing them in Port-au-Prince. And we do a series of lectures on fracture care. And then there's a series of labs that have saw bones, fake bones, or we fly down, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of equipment, and then the residents are able to practice um, in the lab about how putting plates and screws on bones wow. with, with the, under the guidance of the Canadian and U.S. surgeons. And, I mean, we always knew that it was building capacity and that it was teaching people and, and that would be a true legacy, but I tell you that the the one of the most proudest moments for me in all of this was in the craziness of running one of these courses, the last course in particular that we ran, uh, you see the guys and girls who were the junior residents on the first iteration of the course are now in PGY five and they're helping teach other residents at the tables at the amazing. lab. Yeah, amazing. And you kinda you kinda know that you've kinda really made a a difference. Um and, and it's that that was pretty cool aha moment. Even though you, you know you, you hopefully you could have predicted it coming, you never know. Uh, but you to see it firsthand was was pretty pretty special. 
Um, and, you know, in terms of building capacity, we've kind of, we did do something good initially. A lot of what we've done has just been by fluke, but as we started to grow, we, I felt that it was really important that we concentrate on what we wanted to accomplish and, and look inwards about what our core competencies want to be. And we quick, because you, you can imagine as you start to grow, you can go off in all quick, all different directions pretty quickly. Um, and it could get out of control pretty quickly. So we have always kind of concentrated on clinical care, education, uh, infrastructure, and relationships, and that and that's what we want to build our any team around. And so, in terms of building capacity, education is an, an incredible piece. Obviously, relationships are, are are critical, and the infrastructure is important as well. And so, we've built a new hospital down there, uh, probably since you've been there. A new hospital wing uh, within the confines of um, of the space and the footprint uh, of Bernard Mavs. It's two stories, uh, effectively doubles the capacity of the hospital, and um, I think that that's a pretty uh, pretty cool legacy piece. That you know, even if for whatever reason, political instability, global pandemic, whatever, uh, we're never able to get back to Haiti ever again. Uh, the education and the infrastructure, the education that we've left and the infrastructure that we've that we've left them with is, um, I think, is a pretty pretty significant contribution uh, to the Haitian healthcare system on behalf of all Canadians. Not only um, have you done a lot of work globally, particularly in Haiti, but um, clearly you have uh, an eye locally and uh, have have been active in, in trying to understand the problems that affect. Uh, Canadians, and we wanted to highlight another of your papers in the Canadian Journal of Surgery, talking about the morbidity and mortality from pelvic rami fractures in, in elderly Atlantic Canadians. Um, you know, traditionally, I think we don't think of pelvic rami fractures as being a particularly morbid or, or serious uh, injury, but uh, your study kind of highlighted how how different that might be for an elderly population. Um, what did, can you talk to us about your study, and and how do you think we can prevent some of these injuries within our our more vulnerable populations, particularly in the, in the elderly? Yeah, so um, uh, myself and uh, uh, Chris Hamilton, who's a surgeon, he was a resident at the time. We're chatting. He was I was his master supervisor, and um, they were chatting about different projects. And one thing that always struck me uh, was. We fix all these, you know, an elderly person falls from a standing height and one of two things happens. They either break their femoral neck or their intertrochanteric hip or they have a, have a pelvic ring injury of some sort, usually the, the pubic rami with some sacral injury in the back. But we totally ignore the pubic rami and, and pelvic ring injury, but we fix every single hip fracture. Um Surely there is there is morbidity and mortality associated with the pubic ring uh, that we're just uh, and, and the sacral fracture that we're just uh, ignoring or don't understand or hasn't been a part of our treatment algorithm. So we kind of we kind of looked at uh, at that and um, and it it, def- it definitely plays an impact because it's the same as if you're if you uh, has an impact sorry because if you don't treat the same as treating a hip fracture non-operatively to a certain extent. You've committed them to bed for a certain period of time. They're already uh, generally have multiple comorbidities with limited mobility. Um, so it was really supposed to be a, a paper evaluating that 
and, uh, and, and looking forward to potentially, you know, should we be thinking about treating some of these um, surgical so that they can mobilize faster, so that they can get back on their feet more and prevent any, uh, any uh, post-injury complications from happening? Um, there's no question that, I mean, um, you said the elderly are some of the most vulnerable in society, and they are, and, and we've even looked at, um, we've done another paper with uh, looking at the rates of even surgeon understanding of elder abuse. So everyone uh, appropriately talks about intimate partner violence, and we're part of a big study on that as well. But there is an element of elder abuse that I think that as society we are probably missing, uh, not probably, we are mm-hmm. missing. And, um, I, you know, I think that as surgeons, uh, we need to shift our attention towards that as well. Um, because they are, and I think COVID, this COVID crisis has certainly lent a different lens to how vulnerable uh, our seniors actually are, um, uh, or even at home. And, and we need to do a better job uh, in protecting them and making sure that they are able to live uh, their last years as some of their most fruitful years. Yeah, that's so true. I mean, just this month, my last week on our trauma service, we were talking about this exact thing. It's funny it comes up, but we are clearly, uh, you know, under diagnosis, uh, under diagnosing or under detecting uh, elderly abuse. It's clearly going on uh, at a much greater level than, than I think we appreciate. And sure, we pick up the most exotic or or bright, uh, you know, cases, but uh, we probably need to do a better job of screening our elderly. Yeah, even. Even if you assume that there's, a, I don't know, a two, two percent mm-hmm. uh, or three percent for, you know, the fractures that occur in an institution in particular is rate of elder abuse. Like I can tell you, I've never, you know, and I don't know many that have yeah. uh, identified that in a fracture clinic or in a hospital setting, you know, because, it, you know, that for all the reasons. Right. But maybe we need to be better at developing a screening t- tool to direct our attention towards it. Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, a- Andrew, we, we promised we wouldn't ask you any, any questions in particular about um, your, your foray into, into maybe your next job. Um, but I, I did want to dance around that a little bit and, and ask you what your, your view of the concept of leadership was. Um, ask you, you know, some of the roles maybe that you've you've uh, you've played beyond Broken Earth in terms of leadership, and, and whether that's in in your hospital uh, or, or even before that. Uh, you know, I was I was just curious on your on your viewpoint uh, of that concept because it's a it's a pretty obviously broad thirty thousand foot term leadership, but people interpret it in very different ways. Yeah, I mean, I've always looked at leadership as. as as, I've never looked at leadership as a command and authority kind of type of leadership mm-hmm. style. I've always looked at it as a as a as you need to you need to figure out the right tools uh, to engage people, empower them, and help navigate them through complex, uh, often difficult situations. But you can only do that if they believe in in the vision and the direction in which you're going. Um, but you need you need to support them, empower them to make their own decisions, and to and, and to follow you into an unknown situation. Um, and I don't think you can do that with uh, the command uh, style leadership, that really uh, authoritative. Uh, follow me, be, follow me, because uh, only works in for short periods of time and. Mm-hmm. 
in uh, in very trying situations. Um, but if you really want to move uh, and engage a, a, a team of people to follow you, then you need to make sure they're empowered, engaged, uh, have an understanding of what you're trying to do, and uh, motivate them to 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 perform um, and to uh, and so that would kind of be my thirty thousand foot view. I mean, there are all kinds of different uh, leaderships become almost a science or tried to become a science in terms of different mm-hmm. papers uh, looking at the different elements of of leadership and the combination of cognitive and emotional intelligence. Um, but at the end of the day, it's about the people that you're that you're trying to engage and lead. And if uh, if they believe in the vision uh, and they believe that they can make a difference, that they're not just part of a, a train that's going along anyway, uh, then I think that that's that's the style that to employ when trying to uh, to motivate a large group of people. Yeah, it's so true. You know, we we had a great conversation on Cold Steel with uh, a, a gent by the name of Phil Daw, who you may or may not know, comes from a very proud military family. He's a tra- general surgery trauma surgeon out in Vancouver. And really the hour or close to it surrounded the the concept of leadership. And I think, you know, certainly listening to Phil and, and in contemplating it, the, the contemporary definition of of leadership really surrounds exactly what you, what you say. It's it's maybe less of a hierarchy. It's less top down, and it's much more engage, engaging at the so-called grassroots level. So I, you know, I, I guess my question then for you is, how, how do you do that? How, how do you whip up? Um, um, you know, personal investment uh, in folks as you try and move the whole bus forward on whatever that given topic is. <laughs> Hard. Uh, that's, that, that's the age. Of the, 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 it's easy enough to write these things down, but the yeah. how is all, it's the how is always the uh, right when the rubber meets the road. You know, yeah, totally. Yeah, um, I think you know. I think it involves uh, a lot of trust in people, uh, but here. here and trust is is obviously incredibly important, but you also have to trust them to fail. Um, and it's okay to fail. And I think if people uh, have some ideal notion of perfection at all times, it, 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 it won't work. So if you empower the people, if you empower people on your team uh, to take, to make decisions, uh, to take pride in those decisions, but that it's okay if at some point inevitably there is a bad decision or, or you know, the outcome isn't favorable, then I think it allows them to be more creative. It allows them to be more engaged. It allows them to take ownership. It allows them to feel like they're actually, um, actually helping uh, steer the bus as opposed to being a passenger on the bus. Yeah, for sure. You know, it's an interesting time in Alberta right now, and uh, we certainly won't get into the nuances of of what's going on here uh, politically and with and with the healthcare system. But you know, I was just curious on on what your view is as to how how best physicians can advocate both for physician wellness, but you know, certainly more importantly, I think um, for patient wellness in a in a in a balanced, responsible way. Um, recognizing that you know certain eras are tougher than others, and 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 so on. But how, how do you view that relationship in general? Yeah. So first of all, I wouldn't say more importantly for patients. Um, uh, I mean, I think patient wellness. Obviously, we're uh, we're we're bred to be patient advocates, and and we would never get rid of that element of who we are. But I think we've done a terrible job at being our own advocates uh, to date. Um, and part of that is is just 
total culture. Um, I really worry about um, physician burnout and, um, and and a lack of balance between the old school of being in the hospital 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and trying to find a balance with with life um, as we know it. I think you know the the generation uh, just below me in particular is is excellent at pushing that work life balance um and i think as 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 physicians and physician leaders can never lose sight of how important that is because a burnt out physician is no good to anybody and bleeds into mm-hmm. terrible patient care ultimately so you'd rather have a physician who's 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 engaged um who is not burnt out, who's ready to go, who loves the job, loves every every moment of the job, is truly passionate about it. And I think preventing burnout and maintaining that passion and empathy and compassion is incredibly important in, in both in terms of the profession and looking after patients. Um, I also think that physician leaders um, are often uh, afraid to step... I mean, we're... All, <laughs> We're all great at pontificating in the OR lounge about how things should be, right? Um, and uh, but all, a lot of us, many of us, uh, are afraid to be a part of the political system. And uh, my father would always say that if you're afraid to put your hand up at, at all or engage in the process at all, then then your voice doesn't matter. So I mean, I think there there's a there's a growing number of us around the, around the country in particular in the last five to 10 years who have uh, recognized that being part of the political process, and that doesn't mean putting your name on a ballot, by the way. That means like there are all kinds of other ways to be involved in, in the political process is, is incredibly important because we can sit and dump on politicians all we want, but they're the ones who make the decisions and, they're the ones, they're not making the decisions in some sort of echo chamber, by the way, unless you can, they're trying their best, presumably, to uh, listen to all points of view and, and, and to make the decision. So if, you're, if you don't have a voice at that table, they're not going to hear it. And then they're not mm-hmm. going to make a decision that, of course, you're going to be upset with their decision because you haven't adequately influenced how they're going to, to make the decision. So I think it's it, important. Yeah. I think it's important to recognize that we're, as doctors, we don't live in some sort of isolated silo. That we that we if we if we want to progress the patient advocate agenda or our own agenda, uh, we need to have a voice at the table. And sometimes that means taking uh, a role in in the political process because that's how the system works. The elected officials help direct the agenda and uh, of, of the province and of the country. And uh, if we want to change that agenda or help it pivot, then, then we need more than a voice in, in an echo chamber that is the OR lounge or the coffee lineup or wherever. Your, your comment, Dr. Fury, about uh, people complaining about um, politics and, and the situation and the system in the OR lounge rings true for anyone who sat in, in an OR lounge for any period of time, for any for those of us and, and for our listeners who might actually be interested in getting more involved, whether politically or even locally in their hospital, what advice would you have uh, for those folks who uh, are are interested in in getting a bit more involved? Just do it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, 
Um, there are all kinds of different ways to be involved uh, within the uh, leadership of the hospital, leadership of your residency program, and then within the political system itself. I mean, like I said, you don't have to put your name on a ballot to try to influence the process it's, uh, or influence your your elected officials. And by influence, I mean in a good way, right? I'm, I'm not talking about, like, lo- lobbying or anything like that. I mean, just... That's the way democracy works. You you put forward ideas, and 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 whoever's ideas are the best uh, get elected, and uh, and and or you know that's the ideal notion. So if you if you're involved in helping scope in helping shape those ideas that are being presented, then then you can really change the way your province or your country looks. And so I would suggest if anyone's interested, there are physician leadership courses available. There's uh, there's even a, 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 I think, a political program within the Canadian Medical Association, which allows you to help talk to your MPs and, and others uh, through some, I'm just drawing a blank on the name of it right now. Um, or, if you know, if you're so inclined, um, help out with the next election campaign. It doesn't matter the party, really, or, or any of that. It just matters that you're involved. Um, because it, it, once you're involved, you get a better understanding for how the process works. You get a better understanding for how you can help shape the process, help influence the process, and ultimately help um, lead to decisions that that you think are best for for the people, your province, and your country. Yeah, it, 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 I think it's just that initial leap uh, of kind of putting yourself out there that unnerves uh, a lot of us, and, and particularly trainees. Um, yeah, but I mean, you don't like you said. You can just volunteer on the next. Uh, I don't know, you know, the, your next uh, Alberta provincial election, for example, or um, be a part of one of the the parties there where your ideal where your ideology is most aligned. Um, I can tell you that they're always looking for uh, smart people like doctors uh, and people who understand the healthcare system. Uh, to be involved, uh, without a doubt, uh, um, because we bring a unique perspective—a well, perspective that's not always seen as as, as doctors to the table. Uh, this conversation has been really fascinating, and, and it, it's been a real pl- pleasure to talk to you, Dr. Fury. In closing, uh, I just was hoping that you could give uh, some advice that maybe you wish someone had given you. Uh, during your residency, and, and I'm being a bit selfish here given that uh, I'm, I'm just about to finish. So if there was anything that you wish someone had told you during residency, uh, what would that have been? I think, if, you know, the take-home lesson for residency for me, um, if someone could have articulated perhaps a bit better, was that uh, the exam at the end is only the beginning. Um, so, if you know, don't put too much pressure uh, on yourself for the exam. I mean, of course, you want to pass, but um, really the true education begins after you start um, because there is a whole other series of pressures and uh, concerns when when it is uh, your patient, your practice, um, that, um, that isn't captured by any sort of examination process. <laughs> Um, and I think the shock of that, uh, for me a little bit, and I think it's probably true for all surgeons, if you're being honest, um, was a, was a little bit more than I would have been, would have thought. Um, so that would be one thing. The other thing I would say is, again, it's, and it's, it's the same theme, but it's just the start and you can, 
do all kinds of incredible things once you once you're finished. I think you feel like you're in a silo. You're so concentrated on on the subspecialty or the specialty. But medicine has incredible opportunities beyond the walls of the hospital, uh, and just, you just got to keep your eyes open and keep looking for them. Um, whether it's you know being involved in global medicine or your local community or uh, giving back in a in a nonprofit, political, or any other realm, but don't be locked into the four walls of the operating room. Make sure that you keep your head up and look for opportunities. Because at the end of the day, ten, twelve, fifteen years in, um, the job is still awesome and fun, and love every second of it. But there are a lot of what's exciting initially becomes routine, and I think you need self fulfillment from other uh, other opportunities as well. You've been listening to Cold Steel, the official podcast of the Canadian Journal of Surgery. If you've liked what you've been listening to, please leave us a review on iTunes. We'd love to hear your comments and feedback, so feel free to email us at podcast.cjs at gmail.com or connect with us on Twitter at CanJSurge. Thanks again.